0: Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold something greater than Solomon is here. This is God's Word. Please be seated. Thank you. Uh, This is a time of year that... I've I've got about ten books, and some of those books are a series, like the Chronicles of Narnia, that I read uh, once a year. And it's in the spring of the year when winter is... Is coming to spring, that I start again with the Chronicles of Narnia, and out of each one of the chronicles, out of each one of the books in the series, there's something special to me about each one. There's uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Stone Table uh, stands out in my mind. That that Prince Caspian. Uh, the, the silver chair, the silver chair and puddle glum stand out in my mind. Each one has something noteworthy about it, so I can't say which is my favorite in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. But the horse and his boy comes pretty close to being my favorite. There's an instance where Shasta, who is now reflecting in a dark... Uh, in the dark woods as he's making his way to Narnia. He's never been to Narnia before, but he grew up as an orphan or he grew up as a, as a strange little waif, uh, knowing that he was not like the Kalor men that, that, that raised him, that his skin tone was different. And you find out later that he's really a lost prince. But he has an encounter at this point with someone in the dark, and it's beginning to dawn, and this voice begins to welcome a conversation as he's making his way in the journey. It says, Shasta was a little reassured by the voice, though he could not see him. And he began to speak to this one." And he told how he had never known his real father or mother. How he had been brought up so sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of how he escaped. And how he was chased by lions. And how he was forced to swim for his life. And all the dangers in Tashban. About his night among the tombs. How the beast howled him at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey. And how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus. And also, how very long it was since he had had something to eat. Oh, I am so unfortunate. I have had such an unfortunate life. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Well, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions in my journey? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you that there were at least two the first night. And there was only one lion. But he was swift afoot. Well, how do you know I was the lion? And Shasta gasped with an open mouth. And he said nothing. The voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach the king in time. And I was the lion that you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child very near death, so that it came to a shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But what for, child, said the voice? I am telling your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? Myself, said the voice. Myself, loud and clear and gay. Myself, and he whispered it so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet each time it seemed that it would cause the leaves to rustle. What if there was a book? What if there was a book about your life? It was a complete biography of your life. Your birth, your 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 graduation from high school, your first job, first relationship—that it carried you through each fork in the road. It was all there. It predicted your life. It told all about your destiny, and it told about your death, and it told about your burial, and it gave dates as any biography would. But what if you had this book in advance of your life? What if you held this book and you looked at it and it says, Wow, this is the map of my journey. This is my life. Would you like that? Wouldn't that be exciting? Say, wow, a year from now, look where I am going to be. But we also might be anxious What if a year from now I'm in the hospital or I've lost those that are very close to me or I've lost the job or a child? I would be very anxious as I look forward to that unless I were in this book to read ahead and this book promised a happy, glorious ending. Jesus Christ had that book. And that's the point of this morning's homily is that Jesus Christ had a book. He looks here at the Pharisees who are standing around him, the scribes and the Pharisees who would later be those that would be behind the scenes trying to write their own story about his life setting him up for a false trial setting him up to be seized and to be falsely tried and then on good friday to be mercilessly handled and crucified they were trying to write their own ending to his life but jesus christ when they came to him and they said we want a sign we don't want to put faith in you we want we want a sign and if you look in the Gospel of Luke, it says that they frequently ask for a sign from heaven or a sign of Moses. A sign of Moses would be like the manna that, or the quail. Something physically and tangibly that came down out of the heavens that only a prophet or only God himself could do. But Jesus Christ says, you're evil. You're adulterous. You're just wanting something. You know, I've been thinking this last week. Why did he say you're an adulterous generation? Why did he say this is akin to adultery to want to see a sign? Because it has everything to do with something that you don't have, that you lust for, you see it with the eye, you want it rather than the solid, faithful relationship that you have, rather than that that you you have everything needful in a relationship, and yet you go outside of that, just out of your own lust and sinful desires. And so, looking at them, he said, "I'll give you a sign." He said, "The sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah." In verse forty, he says, "For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish." so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus knew this book. And this book, despite us being a very narcissistic culture, this book is not, first and foremost, a selfie of us. This book is not, first and foremost, about us. But from Genesis to Revelation in 6-6 six, six books, it's about Jesus. It begins with something called theologically the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3 where a seed is promised of a woman who will be our champion. He's on a rescue mission. And the the. The rescue mission is drafted and it begins in Genesis. And through the years it's played out that this champion is looked forward to and our Savior is going to come and He's going to be our King and He's going to be our rightful Lord. And and so throughout the books, there are signs and there are glimpses and there's notations of what to look for. Jesus Christ knew this book, and it was a comfort. It was a strength to him. It gave him courage to face what he knew was coming. The Gospel of Mark. Chapter 8, verse 31. Three, I, and I've just... He does this more often. I've I've noticed uh, lately, He does this more often than I first imagined. But notice here in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, this tells you that this is on His mind. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, and the chief priest, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He was teaching, chapter 9, His disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he rises. Chapter 10. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus knew these signs, and he tells the Pharisees, if you know the Bible, if you know the Word, if you know even the prophet, the book of Jonah, then you'll have all the signs that you need for faith and for confidence in me. And I would say as well for us that we, a generation that is increasingly demonstrating the characteristic of being biblically illiterate. We have more information at our fingertips than ever before. We are so inundated with information. I'm a news junkie. And so I have to, I can eat up, I can burn up a lot of time by going on the internet, not to one news site, but three. Each one giving a little different take or an additional bit of news that I might have missed on the other one. And so we have all this information. We have the world at our fingertips, the World Wide Web at our fingertips, but we don't have sources of wisdom. We don't have, as Francis Schaeffer would say, sources of true truth. We have lots of information. But we're becoming increasingly illiterate of a book that is all about Jesus Christ first, but then it becomes a template for our destiny and for our life. And to the degree that we see these signs of Him, to the degree that we know this book, and this is, this morning is not simply about Bible reading. It's not simply about reading. It's not about Bible knowledge. But it's more than that. It's reading with understanding and then trust. Mary stood in a graveyard where her brother Lazarus was buried. And Jesus Christ looked at her and he said, Do you believe in the resurrection? She said, Yeah, I believe in the resurrection on the last day. She knew the Bible, taught a resurrection. And he said, then believe in me. Trust. Rest. But she was weeping and even acc- accosting Jesus that he was not there when Lazarus was sick and ill unto death. He could have prevented that. But just knowing about the resurrection brought her a little comfort because she didn't understand that that's a better day, that it is our destiny, it is promised to us, And it is promised to us that after this life, we will experience in the resurrection a newness and a fullness of life that is certainly our destiny. Many times we only think about the resurrection one day during the year. But every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And if you are discouraged with this life, its darkness and its grayness, one more conflict, one more broken promise, disappointment after disappointment, then take note of Jesus. Jesus could read even about his death. He could go to Psalm 22 and read specifically that they would gamble at his feet, that they would, they would nail him Uh, to a a tree that he could read specifically that they would jeer at him and laugh at him. He could read of that, but he could also read at the end of Psalm 22 that he's going to be exalted. That life is on the other side of death. And it gave him, and I love this about Jesus, this was always on his mind. But he didn't drag himself into Jerusalem to die and be raised again. He marched in there and he said, this is my destiny. Do you know... I've got to be careful. It's supposed to be a homily, and I'm going to break into a sermon. Do you know what disturbed Jesus more? What disturbed Jesus more than his own death and destruction? It's why he would stand before Pilate and even his other accusers and be like a lamb before the shears. He would be silent, he wouldn't seek a pardon. He wouldn't bring forward true witnesses to his miracles and and to his life. Nope. He didn't want, this this one treated like a criminal did not want a last minute reprieve. He feared and, and would hate that more than his own destruction. He feared and he hated your being destroyed, me being destroyed, such a man. And he said, I don't want that to happen. I don't want them to be destroyed. I must be destroyed. It's in this book. But he didn't simply read about his life, his death, and his burial. His burial is forecast there in the book of Jonah. He knew the book. And that's why he says, it's it's all here, it's in the book. But he also knew how Jonah ended. And with that, he says, I can face my death because it's not the end of me, it's just the beginning. And it's just the beginning. And then he looks at us and he says, we can find the similar strength. If you look to Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, I feel this rebuke. He comes to his disciples following... The three days he has risen again. And the disciples are, are getting the message from the women that the grave is empty and they're trying to determine what that means. Instead of disciples who would have heard him, I've got to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be seized, I'm going to be falsely tried, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, but then I'm going to rise again. Over and over and over. Whenever he had an intimate moment, he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be seized. I'm going to be falsely tried. I'm going to be crucified. But I'm coming back. But on Easter morning, they were not standing there at the grave waiting for it to roll. They had to go be found. And now Jesus finds two of them on the road talking. And he said to them, they're scratching their heads. What does this mean? Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I believe he began with Genesis. And all the prophets, I believe that he went through and he says, let me tell you about a book about me. Let me tell you about a book that predicted my coming. And it predicted my life and my ways with men it predicted my birth and my 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 death and it predicted my resurrection look at the book of jonah that's a great sign and he would have talked to them these disciples on the road and given them the sign of jonah he would have started with genesis he would have gone through the prophets he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the th- the things concerning him would you be willing to tell me that you are foolish? I am foolish, like these men, if I don't look at Moses and the prophets and then look at Jesus to say, look, this is a book about him coming and coming for me and what he did for me, and also it is now a book about my promised destiny. If he rose, I rise Most of us don't even read Moses. Most of us don't even give two wits about the prophets. But we're we're not seeing the value in the face of a trial to be able to say, I know how it ends. Things are dark for me in this world right now, but I am comforted by the fact that I know how it ends. And like Jesus, who's able to face the cross... I'm able to take up my own crosses. I'm able to face death daily. I'm able to die to self. I'm able to continue to follow Him in faith because of the promise of a happy ending. The promise that I get life. It's already promised to me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. One quick example. Abraham. Abraham followed God, and he didn't follow God because he had huge signs from heaven. Abraham believed God very simply. He didn't have to rest on his own sight. But he said, I take God at his word. And God had made a promise to him about his son, Isaac. And he said, this is the son that is going to be... the generations are going to come from him. From, this is your firstborn son, but from him, the nations are going to be born. My people are going to come from him. This is the promised son. And then he asked him to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. What allowed Abraham? He loved his boy. He loved him. But he loved God. God. But now he's staring death in the face and he's, mar- he's marching up this mountain. He's marching up this mountain. Knife on him, wood as well, to make a sacrifice of his son. What led him to... What, what could motivate him to, to go against every natural longing to just take up his boy and run away from God as far away as possible? The author of Hebrews pulls back the curtain. He says this about Abraham. He considered that God... The word considered is always important. It means take stock, calculate, meditate, weigh in your mind, come to a conclusion. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words... He knew God's promise. He knew God's word, and he put his faith there. And that was a sign to him that God had made a promise to him. God had given him Isaac, and he's saying, "I'm going to be walking back down with the boy." That's why I'm having the star- servants. I'm, I'm having the servants wait at the base of the mountain, and I wasn't trying to be tricky to Isaac when I told them, "You wait here until me and my boy." come back. But he knew that he was facing death on the mountain. Well, how did he face death on the mountain? Because of the promise of a resurrection. Because he had to come back down off the mountain with Isaac. Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together With Christ. This is the Christian's first step. He is born again. He turns to God, confesses his sins. God says, "Ah, You're my boy. You're my daughter now. I totally forgive you. I totally receive you. Be alive again. But there's another transaction that takes place. You're not only made alive, but you stay alive. You'll never you will never need fear being turned over back to death by God. By grace you've been saved and as a consequence raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. This I cannot wrap my heads around, but you're already not only born again, you're already raised again. You're already resurrected. You're already experiencing the first you're already experiencing the fruits of the resurrection in your life. You are becoming more and more the child that will dwell in the eternal heavens and new earth. You're becoming more and more every day like that person that will be glorified in the new heavens and the new earth. In God's mind and in his economy, you're already raised. Why? Because he believes his word. Because it's already written. We we read in Revelation about the saints gathered around the throne, the elders gathered around the throne. They may not even be dead yet, but they're already, the end of it is already written. Those elders, I don't know, maybe our elders, I hope so, are among those that are going to be gathered around the throne. It's already in God's mind, it's already good because it's already written. And he looks and he gives us this book. And he says, I want you to take comfort when you face death daily in this life. And it may not be physical death that you're facing, even though we are all aging. We're all dying physically. It may be something that seems like emotional death to you. You may be in a very, very dark place, and it seems like it's spiritual death. But God asks us to die. He asks us to die to self that we might, what, rise again and experience newness of life in Him. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, there's that word again, it's similar to considering, with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What Paul is saying, Paul knew the book. He knew the story. He found his place in Jesus' book, in Jesus' story. He found his place there. And he said, just as the sign of Jonah was true for Jesus, then I know that I can take stock that with him being the first fruits of the resurrection, I will rise again. He could say, all the suffering, all the suffering that I face, I'm able to endure it. I'm able to persevere. Are you? How are you holding up? How are you holding up? He said, I'm able to face every suffering with this thought, a thought that he gets from this book, the book of Jesus, God's words, the thought of my glory. Because Jesus died a death for me, but he also received glory for me. That story is told at this table. We don't gather at this table to celebrate a fallen hero. This is not a memorial service. This is not a funeral service. When we take the bread and we take the cup, We're raising it, not to a fallen hero, but we're celebrating a Lord who is serving us alive through His Spirit. The great mystery is Christ is at this table in a very mysterious but real way. He's alive. And He's eating this with us. He's giving Himself to us. And these are signs. The bread is a sign of his broken body and the cup is a sign of his shed blood poured out for us. And when we take these signs, we're taking him at his word to say his death on my behalf. And then he made a great promise at the table. He said, this is the last Passover that I'm going to celebrate with you. This is the last Lord's Supper, I'm going to celebrate with you. It's the last time that I'm going to drink wine until you're with me in heaven. Oh, what can I face with that feast in mind? What can I face? I want to invite our men to come forward as they prepare to serve us. It's written in the book that on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, and he knew he would be, he took bread and he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. His body had not been broken yet, but he knew that it would. And there was no reluctance on his part, no shying away. But because he longed for fellowship with us and for us to be with him and to always break bread with him, He was willing to die in our place. Eat this in remembrance of me, he said. For as often as you eat the bread, you celebrate my body broken in your place. In the same manner, after supper, the Lord Jesus Christ took the Passover cup and he said, This cup represents my blood. It represents my shed blood for the remission or the washing away of all sin. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you celebrate my death on your behalf until I return. Those words are contained in the book. Those words are not, we call them the words of institution, but they come from Jesus. And they are a great, comfort to us because now physically physically when we masticate and chew the bread and we wash it down and if you take from the cup a common cup take drink don't just go sip but you're celebrating we're not eating and drinking to forget we're eating and drinking to remember and to take great comfort even in the trials that we face because they are momentary and short-lived to the glory that is promised us as our destiny contained in the book.